0: Well, it is great to be with you once again on this Celebration Sunday. But before we hear from the Word of the Lord today, I wanted to share something, uh, maybe perhaps a bit of vision of why we do Celebration Sundays and why celebration is an important spiritual discipline. Um, This comes from a uh, a liturgy, a bit of a reading. It comes from um, a project called Every Moment Holy, And I learned about this from last year from one of the forum interns. This is called a liturgy for feasting with friends. So just kind of putting your focus in just kind of the ordinary moments of life. But it says this, and I think we have a slide for this so you can read along with me. It says, to gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart Acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal And are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of His eternal kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. And of course, we'll be enjoying a feast. Of sorts later on, and Jesus often went to feasts, often went to dinner parties, and he went to those places to connect with people who needed a reason to celebrate, and he had news for them that was worthy of celebration. And so I do wonder that as part of our identity as disciples of Jesus, if we too should consider ourselves celebration warriors who celebrate as acts of defiance of sin and death, saying, You don't get the last word. And yes, there is a time to mourn. We mourn the events of Texas this past week. But we don't mourn as those who lay their weapons down. <laughs> but we take up our weapons, our knives, our forks, and our spoons, and our cups. And we celebrate in defiance of death, saying, you don't get the last word. And we invite others into that celebration to give them a glimpse of that great feast to come. So maybe as you have dinner parties or maybe as you eat with your house churches and households, maybe you find this and you read it together. Again, it's a liturgy for feasting with friends from uh, every moment holy. Well, today or rather, last Celebration Sunday, we talked about the goodness of God. Uh, And we talked about how we could see the goodness of God through the things that He created and how we can experience those things through our senses, pointing us to the goodness of our Creator. But today, we're going to talk about the greatness of God. Now, in talking about the greatness of God, we're not merely talking about an extension of good or another level of goodness, you know, like we, we say hey, is that double fudge ice cream coat any good? And we say, no, it's great. So Mike, is that new Top Gun movie any good? No. <laughs> he says, no, it's terrible. But no, we all know, according to Mike, it's great. But we're not talking about greatness as an extension of or another level of goodness, but we're talking about God's greatness as the things that put us in awe of God, the things that are amazing about God, His immensity, The things that God does that no one else can do. His power and his wisdom. So today, we're going to start by reading Psalm chapter 86, starting in verse 8. It says, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. And so as we consider the greatness of God today, we're going to do so by looking at sections of Mark chapter 4 and 5, and it would be kind of too, too much to read, so I'm kind of going to paraphrase, but feel free to keep that section open and you can look, look at the headings and maybe you can skim through and tell me if I got anything wrong. But before we get to Mark 4 and 5, I want us to consider things about Genesis chapter 3, parts, uh, a part of the, the major story of, of the biblical story. And I, I imagine that many of you are familiar with this part of the Bible, even, you, even the kids. I'm sure you've heard this story a lot, uh, this part of Genesis chapter 3. So, and we'll go ahead and pull the iPad up if, uh, if we can get that going. Get that to wake up. And in Genesis 3, of, of course, we know the Bible be- before that, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind in his image, and all God created was good. good. But I wonder, if, is there a young person who can tell me what made things to become not so good? Yeah, what, what happened? Anybody? Yeah, sin, right? Yeah, sin made things not so good. Because humanity rebelled against God. They, they didn't trust what he said. They trusted in what somebody else said. They trusted in what they thought. And so that made things not so good. And so God in Genesis 3 comes and tells humanity the results of their sin. But God doesn't only speak to Humanity, the man and the woman here, who else does God speak to? Who else did God address in Genesis 3? Yeah, so the serpent, right? This serpent who came and deceived humanity. Now, this serpent was no mere snake in the grass. This serpent was actually a spiritual being in rebellion against God. And it seems that the scriptures later identify this serpent as the Satan, or Satan. And so, God says to the serpent that I will put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. Enmity meaning that you are now going to be enemies with humanity. So this is now a problem. We have this problem with humanity, is that now we have this enemy, and we can describe it as spiritual evil. Humanities, one of humanity's problems as a result of the fall is that we have a problem that we contend with spiritual evil. And I, I could simply write spiritual evil here, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to have more fun with it and draw an icon. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to say it's a good one, but I'm going to draw a snake. And this is the important part here. It's not on screen? Oh, there we go. There we go. It's on screen now. There we go. We'll draw a little tongue there. You know, let's, let's make this a rattlesnake just to give it a, some bit of character there. There, So there's a snake. So remember that snake here um, represents spiritual evil. Okay. So then God speaks to the woman and he says some very important things to the woman, but uh, I'm not going to cover, for our purposes, I'm not going to cover a lot to that, of that today, but just just kids, just, just be grateful that your mom loves you. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. But But I want to talk about what God says to the man. He says to the man, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall produce for you until you return to the dust. And so God created humanity to rule over creation for him, and creation was meant to yield its strength, yield its produce to humanity. But now because of sin, creation no longer cooperates, right? It no longer cooperates, and I think that extends to things like weather patterns, so uh, drought and famine. Uh, You know, I was just in Colorado this past week. I went with my family, and we had a pretty good first couple days there. We arrived, and in the first full days there, 70 degrees and sunny, a nice day to hike in the Rocky Mountains. The next day... For that part of Colorado, record lows for the month of May in the 20s, 14 inches of snow, cloudy the whole time until, of course, the day we left. On the way to the airport, we finally saw Pike's Peak. And the fact that the temperature change was so drastic, the, the windshield of our rental van cracked. So let's just say creation was not my friend. And so we contend with a fallen creation. So to, to, uh, to represent that, I want to draw a tornado because, you know, I, I grew up in Greene County and, uh, you know, near Xenia, or, and uh, the rumor is that the Shawnee Indians called Xenia the land of the devil wind. So here we're combining a number of things here. But the next thing that God says to the man is that, of course, you shall eat of it until you return to the dust, for dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And so now, because of the fall, we see a consequence of that is death. But not only death, uh, death brings along with it a nasty little friend called disease and sickness and illness and physical ailments. Because there's a lot of ways to die. You can die by accident, you can die from someone harming you, but in reality, No one really dies of old age. You can live to be the ripe old age of 100, but no one dies of old age. You die of a disease or some physical ailment. It's just that as you age, your body becomes more vulnerable to those types of things. So we all contend with things like disease and death. So to represent that, draw a tombstone here. Let's make it a little bit three-dimensional. A little shadow there. And we want this person to rest in peace. And we'll draw a little flower just to say that somebody cared for this person. There we go. All right, there we go. So we deal with spiritual evil, a fallen creation, and disease, and death. And all of these things, as we consider them, we feel we have no control over these things. And we feel as as though that these are greater than us. These things are greater than us. And so you may be thinking, gee, Chad, I thought this was Celebration Sunday. And you're talking about all these depressing things. Stick with me, it gets better. Because bad news makes the good news sweeter, right? this is where we get to Mark chapter four. In Mark chapter four, we're gonna start in verse 35. Jesus has been teaching the crowds, teaching the parables, and he decides that he wants to go to the other side of the lake. So he tells his disciples, let's get in the boat, we're gonna go to the other side of the lake, And after a long day of ministry, Jesus is tired. I mean, he is human after all. and So he decides to take a nap. He sleeps on a cushion. But suddenly there comes this major storm. You see, in this area, it's the Sea of Galilee. So it's 600 feet below sea level, but it's not far from it are mountains, such as Mount Hermon, which is some 9,000 feet above sea level. So what happens is that you get this collision of warm air and cool air, and so... You get storms, these massive storms that happen. Now, as I reflect on this, you know, I was recently in an airplane, and I think about how the fact that the disciples were fishermen, they were used to these storms. They were used to navigating through these just the same way that pilots are used to navigating through turbulence. Myself, I don't consider myself a frequent flyer, I don't love turbulence. <laughs> You know, I feel like, okay, I feel, I feel like we're about to go down. Like, what is happening? The pilot, it's just Tuesday for him, right? It's just, he's used to it. But I'm sure there comes a point when a pilot will recognize when something is more than just normal turbulence, right? And for the disciples, they recognize this isn't the typical kind of storm that we can just navigate, navigate through. They were terrified. They were afraid. The, the water was filling their boat. And so they decided to go and see, like, how is Jesus handling this tumultuous situation. So they go and look and they find him still sleeping. I mean, I know some people might play ocean sounds next to their beds as they try to sleep, and that's what, but this is some next level relaxation technique that Jesus is using here to keep him asleep. He's sleeping through the storm and they say, don't you care? You're just gonna sleep through this? Don't you care that we are drowning? Jesus gets up. And says to the storm, quiet, be still. The Greek word here is the word for muzzle. The way that you would muzzle an animal to keep it from biting or barking. Jesus muzzles this storm. He takes the bite and bark out of it and it sits there obediently wagging its tail. But it says it becomes completely calm. The wind dies down and the the water isn't even choppy anymore. It's as smooth as glass. And he says to his disciples, Why were you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, the disciples said to themselves, Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? They were afraid of the storm but they were now terrified of Jesus. They didn't feel safe in the storm, but now they didn't feel safe because of, you know, whose presence are we in? I wonder if, this, if it's this kind of Isaiah 6 kind of thing. I'm undone. I recognize my place as a sinner, and I'm in the presence of something else altogether. But, kids, with this Jesus, you know, calming the storm. What does Jesus demonstrate his power over? What does Jesus show himself greater than? He shows himself greater than creation. Oh, come on, what is this? All right, Jesus, there we go. Jesus shows himself to be greater than the storms, greater than creation. Next story. They make it to the other side, and they are greeted by a man who had an unclean spirit. It gives a bit of background. Mark gives a bit of background of this man, that the, the locals tried to bind him because he was so out of control. They tried to put chains on him, but he would constantly break through the chains. No one was powerful enough, no one was great enough to subdue him. And he lived among the tombs, cutting himself with rocks and crying out. These demons were dehumanizing him. But he sees Jesus coming and he runs to him and he falls at his knees and says, I know you're the son of God, have you come to torture me before the time? You see, even the demons know they're no match for Jesus and they know of their eventual fate. This one says, is it time? But Jesus says, what is your name? Replies, I'm legion, for we are many. Send us not into the abyss, but send us into the pigs. Jesus gives them permission to go to the nearby pigs, some 2,000 of them. And all 2,000 of them head, go off a cliff and drown in the sea nearby, taking the demons with them. A strange story for sure, but the man is now dressed and in his right mind, and the locals who had seen him before have no idea what's going on and they're terrified. Instead of celebrating and instead of expressing faith, they are terrified and they ask Jesus to leave the region Well, Jesus complies with their request. But with this story, what does Jesus demonstrate his greatness over? Spiritual evil, right? Remember, another thing that has affected us because of the fall. So Jesus is greater than a fallen creation. He's greater than spiritual evil. Beyond this, Jesus goes back to the other side of the lake He's immediately greeted by a man, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus, who falls at his feet and says to him, please help, my daughter is dying. If you would just come and lay your hands on her and heal her. So Jairus had this 12-year-old daughter, and so Jesus says, lead the way. He goes with him. But while he's walking, this great crowd is pressing or in around him. But among that crowd is this woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So she had this condition, right, this condition, this kind of sickness, if you will, and and she spent all her money trying to get better, but instead of getting better, it only made her worse for 12 years. And so she was this woman, and she had this condition that made her, in that culture, ritually unclean. So she was on the fringes of Jewish society, and now she was flat broke. A terrible condition to be in. But she heard of Jesus coming and she thought to herself, maybe if I just touch his clothes. I've tried everything else. Maybe if I just touch his clothes. And so she makes her way through the crowd, gets a swipe of Jesus' clothes, and immediately she knows she's better. Now she could have gone on about her day and Jesus could have gone on about his day, but he stops. He stops and he asks, who touched me? His disciples point out, "Look at this great crowd of people around you. who hasn't touched you? What do you mean who touched me? But Jesus had sensed that power had gone out from him. The Greek is "Dunamus," where we get the word "dynamite. Dynamite power had gone out from him. and he wanted to know why. Well, this woman knew that she was busted. So, and this was a big deal because she was a woman, she was in this unclean condition, and so for her to publicly touch a rabbi would have been a huge scandal. But she comes before, falls to her knees with fear and trembling, and confesses the whole thing. And Jesus says to her, daughter, she's an outsider, but Jesus now brings her in, daughter, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you, go in peace, be free from your suffering. Now Jesus didn't have to stop. He could have winked at her, said, you're welcome. But he stops. Why? Because Jesus is personal. Jesus is relational. And Jesus wanted to to confirm for her that, look, it's not... Anything magic about my clothes, it was your faith in me that has rescued you. It is me, the object of your faith, that has made you well. And so, meanwhile, while this is happening, men come to Jairus and say, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But Jesus says to Jairus, Look, don't be afraid, just believe. This is the fourth time within this kind of block of stories that fear or something related to fear is mentioned. The disciples were afraid in the storm. The, the locals were afraid when they saw the man delivered from the demon. This woman fell with fear and trembling. But now Jesus says to Jairus, don't fear, just believe. It's almost as if it's the punchline of this entire block of scripture. Do not fear, just believe. And so Jesus follows Jairus to his daughter who has died. And there's a great crowd around there weeping, probably a handful of professional mourners, people hired to grieve. That's a thing they did in those days. And Jesus said, why all this commotion? She's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laughed at him because they knew what a dead girl looked like. And the truth of the matter is the girl actually was dead. So why did Jesus say she's only sleeping? Perhaps we'll discover that in just a minute. So Jesus brings Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents into the room. And just like with the storm, he doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't wave a wand and say some spell. He simply takes her by the hand and says to her, Talisa kum which is Aramaic. You know, Mark interrupts his Greek flow of thought to give us the Aramaic, a sign that this is eyewitness testimony, giving us the very Aramaic words that Jesus said. And it means Talitha, little girl, but more than just little girl, more of a diminutive term, a pet name like honey or sweetheart. And kum, arise. So Jesus takes this dead girl by the hand and says, hey, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. And she does. So why did Jesus say that she was only sleeping? It's because Jesus is so great that when he has you by the hand, death is like sleep. So with this healing of this woman, and he's not even trying to heal her. It's coming off of his clothes. And with this taking the hand of this little girl, and like as if he's a parent waking her up for breakfast. Jesus is greater than death and disease. The things that plague us from the fall, Jesus has shown his complete dominance over. But Not only do we see the greatness of his power, we also see his wisdom. You see, imagine when Jesus stops to talk to this woman... Remember the situation he's in. It's like he's in an ambulance. This is emergency. He's got to go. I mean, imagine Jairus as Jesus talks to this woman. Um, my daughter's dying. we we got to go now. I mean, this would be like an emergency room doctor being at a restaurant. Someone's choking two tables over, and he gets up to go and, and help them. But he stops in the table in between to ask someone, how's that arthritis you've had for a couple of decades? The person at the table with the, people, with the person choking is like, that can wait. You don't trade the acute conditions for the chronic. But there's wisdom in the timing of Jesus. We get so confused, we don't understand the timing of God. But it works out. He knows exactly what he's doing. Because you see, because of the timing of Jesus, both the woman and Jairus get more than what they ask for. The woman simply wanted a a, a pass-by healing. But Jesus, if he gives her that, they never have that conversation. But Jesus affirms her, calls her daughter, affirms her healing, affirms her salvation. Now, the woman never would have probably chosen to be called out, but I bet you that she's sure glad that that happened. Jesus gave her more than what she asked for. And Jairus asked for a healing. What he got was his daughter back from the dead and a clearer picture of who Jesus actually was. There's wisdom to his timing. So, this is when the the band can go ahead and start to make your way to the stage. Why is it important to talk about the greatness of Jesus? Well, it's important to talk about it so that we believe it. Because if we don't believe it, we, like some in this passage, will be given over to fear. We'll be given over to fear and doubt and worry that God's going to get something wrong. Or if we don't believe in his greatness, we might look back with anger and bitterness and resentment that God has gotten something wrong. But the greatness of God means that God is the one being in all of reality that's never had to say, Oops. And so, but because of this fear, we want to be in the driver's seat. We want to take control and we will seek control by finding our security and money, security in relationships and what people think of us, security in our status and position. And we'll try to manipulate everything in our lives because we think we know and that we have the wisdom to know exactly how our life ought to go. The truth is, we don't. We are not wise enough. We are not great enough. But Jesus is. And when we recognize the greatness of Jesus, we can know we don't have to be in control. We can trust in his power and in his wisdom. Now, if we give over to fear, we may be like the disciples in the storm who said to Jesus, Don't you care? Don't you care that I'm drowning? Don't you care that my marriage is drowning? Don't you care that I'm drowning in debt? Don't you care that my job and my finances are sinking? Don't you care that my health is going down? Of course he cares. Do you know how I know that? It's because all these things, all the ways that we've been affected by the fall, Jesus overcame through his death and his resurrection. On the cross, Jesus overcomes spiritual evil, disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. As Jesus gets a nail in his heel, he is at that time crushing the head of the serpent. And on the cross, Jesus is quieting and muzzling the only real storm in your life that can capsize you. The storm of your sin. And he let himself be tossed into that sea, just as Jonah. And once he was tossed into that sea, it calmed it. It took its power. And because of this, not only are we redeemed, but creation itself will be set free. And of course, Jesus overcomes death through his resurrection. Now. None of this means that you will not wrestle with spiritual evil, that you will not go through storms in life, and that you'll not have to deal with death and disease. But what it does mean is that he will be with you, and that those things don't get the final word. The final word is Talitha Kum. my child, Arise. Because of His greatness, you don't have to be in control. So let's respond in worship to that greatness.